0: You are listening to Mike Seminary and Friends,
1: a Q1 Network production. I can't, I can't remember the last time that healthcare, in every facet of healthcare that you would think of, hasn't been part of a conversation in our country for one reason or another. Typically, and I think this is a thing most of us can agree on irrespective of of how we feel about issues politically. Health, over the last 30 to 40 years, there are two things that are critically important for most of us have increased in terms of their delivery system more than anything else. Healthcare and education. Those two things um, have increased percentage-wise more than anything else. I, th- I think currently healthcare costs are up around 20% of our gross domestic product. That's a big number. And you know, it's probably up around five to $6 trillion. That's a big, big number. And it's hard it's hard to have quality of life if you don't have access to good, affordable health care. And by the way, pretty hard to have quality of life if you're making bad decisions, which I used to do a long, long time ago. Well, today I'm really excited to have on Mike Samaria and friends, a person I met when he moved to Bismarck with a health care company. And I had the opportunity to, to follow his incredible career. He's done great things for the state of North Dakota in the healthcare field. He's now left the state for a wonderful opportunity. It's great to have on Mike Seminary and Friends, my friend, Chris Jones. Chris, it's great to see you. How are you this morning? I
0: am great. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to talk about healthcare and childcare.
1: Yeah, we, you know, we've been meaning to do this for so long and for one reason or another, it hasn't happened. Uh, but here we are. You're, you, um, I want to, to first dig into just a little bit how we met and then how I followed uh, what you did in the state of North Dakota. You moved to Bismarck, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago, whatever it was, with a healthcare company, CHI. And uh, you were in the business development, I think, a senior vice president at the time and really opening the door as CHI came to Bismarck. And you were the face of uh, you know, a lot of the executives, not, not necessarily the CEO, because that was your job. And that's how we met. We sat down in a meeting. And right away, I thought, this is a great guy. I like this guy. And I consider you a friend ever since. Are you glad that you moved to Bismarck?
0: Yes, I'm glad I moved to Bismarck. its It's been, you know, with everything in life, you, you can look back and look at what went right and what went wrong. And. You know, of those things that have gone wrong, you get to learn so much from them and yeah. then hopefully learn from them and make it better the next time.
1: Here's a question I wanted to ask you. Uh, because I used to have these conversations with my my uncle, my mom's brother. Kid that grew up in Little Grafton, North Dakota, Dirt, you know, they were dirt poor uh, because their parents grew up in the you know, Great Depression, they had nothing. But he ended up becoming one of the more recognizable hospital CEOs in the country. I just lost him, by the way, around Christmas. And we used to have these incredible conversations about the state of health care. And he always would say, because he was such an optimist, that, it, you know, it's going to work its way out. It will figure out a way to make this work because we have government that funds Part of the system, we have insurance companies, we have the pro- providers, but most importantly, we have this care to deliver to patients, and it will work its way out. He'd been saying he'd been saying that for about thirty years, and I don't know that we're necessarily necessarily there yet. Is that a fair statement to make?
0: Oh, it, it's very fair, and with with all due respect, <laughs> um, I would disagree with him because I think we're on a trajectory right now where. It you know, if things don't change, there will be a revolution in healthcare. And because the industry is just so large, a revolution, in essence, in the industry will cause such poor health outcomes that the one who's going to lose are those in need of healthcare. And and that that is truly my fear is we are getting closer and closer to a revolution versus how can we be thoughtful about how large the industry is and be more evolutionary to make sure that what we're doing the system can handle but is also getting the outcomes that we want and and it is a complex system <clears throat> and folks will say you know you just can't do that it you know i i compare I'll, I'll probably be more controversial than i should but you know a lot of times i compare healthcare to to the NRA um because no one wants to give an inch and you know with with the NRA you got the second amendment there is no amendment that says everybody has the right to healthcare many people believe that but that is not in our constitution and so unless we come up and use what has made america great which is entrepreneurship innovation and really looking at the, the good parts of, of capitalism where the person who is defining value is the purchaser and the consumer. Right now, that doesn't exist in healthcare. Consumers do not know what they're paying for. And because of that, there has been less and less transparency in the industry. So people don't know what things cost, even within the industry. If you ask, they'd say, well, I'm going to have to go back to an analyst and let you know what the cost of that item is. And then there's rebates and pricing and contracts and value-based purchasing that impacts that care. There's just, no one knows what the cost of healthcare is other than that very large number that you shared. And at some point, if you look at the people who are making good choices about their health, they're using very little healthcare, if, if, if any. Um, and their funding, whether it's through their own taxes or their premiums through their employer or their private insurance, they're spending a lot of money, and there's going to come a time where people just can't afford it. And then what happens?
1: Yeah. Well, that's a perfect ramp, frankly, to use to back up a little bit on your previous career before Cicero. We'll come back to Cicero and the, the very subject you were just so eloquently addressing. And I agree with you, too, by the way. I always found it difficult to disagree with my uncle. I loved him so much, and he was in it, and he's so smart. (laughs) Um, Because sometimes things just don't fix themselves. It takes um, intentional hard work and cooperation. You left the state recently. You were, um, after CHI, you were... Originally, the executive director of North Dakota Department of Human Services, and then the commissioner of North Dakota Department of Health and Human Services. You led that reorganization of a critically important agency, um, which provides you know healthcare, very important services from you know infant to grave, so to speak. Here's my first question. Were you aware of how important that reorganization was in terms of the need before you left CHI? Because you were at CHI, were you seeing this and aware that we can do better?
0: Well, this might be a really convoluted long answer, but... um I had never any desire to go work in government ever. I had, that was never going to be one of my goals in life. Um, And if I would have known what I was getting myself into, um, I would have, I would have run so fast away. I just would have hung up the phone. Would have been the rudest phone call probably of my life. And so, I mean, a lot of, for me, and I, I kind of led into this in the beginning, but Um, having the the opportunity that governor Burgum gave me is, you know, a once in a lifetime opportunity because I got to learn so much and I often make the joke, you know, used to be a healthcare suit, you know, healthcare suits know everything. And if you don't believe them, just ask them. Hmm. And I was confident that Medicaid was a poorly run system, that it didn't make any sense. It was a bureaucratic nightmare. And everything else was going to be a piece of cake. Um, I was sorely mistaken. I would say that coming in and, and and generally speaking, and I hopefully you saw this when you met me, I, I think I have a fair amount of humility. I thought I had about a 40% understanding of Medicaid. Um, once I got in it, I realized I knew about 8%. And Medicaid was probably the easiest program for me to understand in the entire agency uh, i had <clears throat> no idea the impact of economic assistance things like snap which is food snap food stamps what they were previously called certainly no understanding of foster care um, behavioral health i mean when i worked for catholic health initiatives i closed a couple inpatient acute psych units because not because they lost money, because they were so hard. I mean, that was that was the issue. I mean, they didn't make money, but they didn't lose money. It was just such hard work to keep the workforce back then. And it was just taking away from the other or mission of the hospital. And and frankly, behavioral health was not what it is today. And so it wasn't really a controversial thing. But when you look at, you know, kids specifically. And how little we listen to kids, and I don't mean listen to like what they want, but we know what they need. You know, someone said, and I've been trying to find who is actually credited with this quote, but it, it said, if you want to know what your priorities are, look at your checkbook. And <clears throat> it's, it's just very clear where our priorities are and the incentives we put in these systems. To get the outcomes that we get versus the outcomes that we want. And why there's still that disconnect, I mean, I have to reflect back to where I was 10 years ago. I understand why we are where we're at. So the question is how do we continue to do more education, tell the story, and make sure the investments are going in the correct places? So I could go on and on about that into a deep, deep rabbit hole. But as it relates to merging the two agencies, Medicaid has become such a large component of social services, social services meaning helping the poor and the vulnerable, that when you look at the way North Dakota was structured, you had economic health and behavioral health sitting in Department of Human Services, and you, in essence, had physical health, the the, kind of the delivery of it and the policy of it sitting in another agency. And oftentimes, never the two shall meet. And when we would go to the legislature, they would say, why are you both doing the same program? Very inefficient. Um, and there, you know, North Dakota has been blessed with a lot of financial resources. And so sometimes both would get funded. And sometimes we pick the wrong priorities. And sometimes those priorities would be in conflict with one another. And the only ones who lose in that are the citizens who pay the taxes and those who actually need services, whether it's from a public health, a behavioral health, or an economic health perspective. They they never lined up. And when, when you look at humans being as messy as they are, it only takes one of those things to create a crisis in another thing. So instead of talking about programs, why don't we talk about people? and and people, I mean, everybody's a unique individual. Every family's unique, but there are some personas of individuals. It's like, let's have some empathy as government, understand where they're coming from and build it around them instead of building around a program. I know when I started, people were like, Oh, Chris, you know, it's such a big job. It's the largest budget with the most FTEs. And I was like, doesn't matter how big the agency is it's about what i mean if you can make a family strong if you can make a child successful in the future or you know a child successful now and into the future that is far more rewarding and i can tell you the vast majority of employees who work for the department of health and human services that's why they come to work regardless of what the public thinks that that's why they're there and and i would say i i didn't respect or understand their drive to work in government and you know that was another reckoning for me personally i thought state employees didn't work that hard at least not as hard as the private sector and and i was wrong i mean that's one of about a thousand misconceptions i had before i started so
1: yeah it's one of those things. That, and I'm as guilty of this as anybody. Sometimes I have an opinion based on only what I think, not really what I know. And the more mature I become, you know as I said, mature versus the older I get, the more I appreciate my ignorance that that i had and how much more i appreciate what i don't know especially when it comes to someone else's place in in their life i have no idea what most people are thinking before their feet hit the floor in the morning i used to say that you know when i was a, a manager or boss I, I knew I was already thinking about what problem you're going to deal with, what opportunity you're going to have. Are we on track for the budget? Are we going to have to lay some people off? Whatever that might be. That's what I was thinking before my feet hit the floor in the morning. And I come to learn that's what most people do when they have a job, when they have responsibilities, for better, for worse. We're thinking about that before our feet hit the floor in the morning And I was the guy that had opinions of them, and I wasn't qualified to have them. And I find myself saying, and I'm agreeing with you, Chris, I find myself saying that if more of us think that way and felt that way, well, maybe that could help us a long way to making life better for, for everyone. By the way, folks, I forgot to say that what Chris is currently doing, he's the senior fellow way too young, by the way, to be called a senior fellow. But senior fellows are people that um, they have a unique set of skills in a specific area. It has nothing to do with their age. He's the senior fellow and vice president for healthcare policy at Cicero Institute, which uh, organization I had not heard of until uh, Chris went to work with them. So let's use that now you know, to talk about this healthcare pending revolution, because I agree with you, um, but we can't take much more. In, in some ways, I think. What what now? Cicero doesn't work just with healthcare. It has uh, m- multiple um, areas of concern. But you're in the healthcare policy, which you know affects most of us more than just about anything else in our, in, in our life. Um back to my uncle, and then what you were saying, and it's not going to fix itself. We have we have a lot of money when it comes to health care. Just look at the the salaries of healthcare professionals, the salary of insurance executives, you know, the salaries of a lot of people. There's a lot of money in the system. Is is one of Cicero's goals to help. Um, the conversation with regards to policy and how to maybe better realign how we make some of those investments? Is that in terms of how to address healthcare policy for the patient and the private sector still making the nut that they want to make? Is that, am I kind of right there when I say that?
0: Yeah. Um, Cicero was was founded by a gentleman by the name of Joe Lonsdale. Um, and he's most widely known for being a co-founder of Palantir. And for people can look up Palantir, but it, it it's a AI um company that their initial contract was with the Department of Defense to quote unquote go go find the bad guys by using data that was available. And he's been very successful. And you know, he he has this the the way he would describe it is he's a, a true entrepreneur, free market thinker. And thought that business can solve all of societal's ills. And he learned that, you know, it can solve a lot of them, but it can't solve all of them because we still have this thing called the federal government and state government. And so it became clear to him that he needed to put his foot into that realm as well, and started the Cicero Institute specifically for that reason. And where Cicero is coming at things and and I mean, this is, it couldn't have come at a better time, really, for me for for a phone call from them. But it's really, how do you look at how do you solve it by putting more transparency? Patients make choices. Um, move away from regulation, because again, the, the the regulations that that exist in healthcare, the only industry that is regulated more than healthcare is nuclear power, and I think we can all. People are saying we need to bring nuclear power back, or there there are some who who think that is is part of the equation. Um, but one of the reasons it went away it was just it was just too difficult to operate in that environment, and and that's somewhat where healthcare is. So, that where the Cicero policies are at today are really around transparency and, and deregulation. And I think just to give a couple ideas of of deregulation. Um, Don't want to spend a lot of time talking about the pandemic, but during the pandemic, telemedicine exploded because all the regulations were eliminated. And generally speaking, it was very successful. People had access to care. The the inputs to deliver telemedicine are far less than they are in face-to-face contact, and the outcomes are better. So, but when the pandemic ended, Ended all of a sudden, the federal government, state government, said, "Okay, we're gonna we're gonna tighten the screws again. We need to get people back face to face." Why can't the patient decide, you know, who they want to see, when they want to see them, how they want to see them? And if you think about certain areas of healthcare, say it, whether it be behavioral health or physical health, the patient should get to choose. You can create all these regulations. So in, in telehealth, the simple one would be is you know. Allowing the physician to not be in the state the patient is in. I mean, if you're traveling from Texas to Florida, do you say, and and you better yet, let's do North Dakota, Arizona. You go to a do you go to a doctor in Arizona because you're a snowbird, you think you're getting less quality care than you are in North Dakota or vice versa? I haven't, you know, people have their preferences, but they're not saying, oh, I'm not safe going to a hospital in Arizona. No, that, that doesn't happen. So we create all these right, you know, in, in the spirit of keeping people safe. Well, you know, in this, this is another revelation I've had too. regulations. We think create safety. Um, but by having too many regulations and not having access or timely access actually creates an unsafe environment as well. So you have to be willing to do those trade-offs of what risk are you willing to have? And sometimes it just comes into, you know, the widgets that are being created. And and that's important, whether it's in healthcare, whether it's in foster care. I mean, you can't keep everybody safe. And even going back to when we were talking about employees that work for the state, the way society and the machinations of government work if a government employee makes a mistake even if it's not a mistake and they just follow the law and something goes wrong they are blamed up and down i mean we've created the incentives of not moving quickly by having all these regulations and then how we approach when something that we don't want to happen happens we'll never be perfect so that is real, like if you think about it that way, that's that's how Cicero is thinking. That's how I'm thinking about it. You need to measure the risk, and you will never be hundred percent safe. So these regulations are actually making us less safe, specific. Not not all of them in healthcare, but but definitely some of them. I think the other key component to um well, and and then another one, think of this. And and this is something I just learned. Cicero has an international physicians model bill where right now in the. US you know most most physicians are trained in the. US they go to a, a medical school in the US and they do a residency in the. US and then they pass their boards, um, go through the steps and they become a physician and after they become a physician they still have to be licensed and then they still have to be credentialed by the medical center that they're going to and they still have to be credentialed by, the payer to receive payment. Well, if you're in some, some of the physicians in the U S do do international medical programs where they go to a medical school that has been accredited by the U S they do their medical training in another country. And then they're required to do their residency back in the United States. So, and then they go through that whole same process as well. Why in the world would we not let those physicians who have been trained at an approved medical school, who have done a residency connected to that medical school in another country, come to the US, be supervised, be be hired by an employer who's putting their liability at risk to see patients? And, And oh, by the way, why that becomes even more important is because the federal government has capped the number of residency slots since 1997. And the majority of the residency programs are on the east side of the country. So those have been capped. Our population has gone up. Our need for medical care has gone up. And so I don't think anyone would disagree. There's a shortage of physicians. So then you look at, right now there's approximately 7,000 Medical graduates who don't get matched in the residency. Two thousand of them are domestically trained, and about five thousand are internationally trained. But let's just do the domestic-trained ones. You are going to school. You go K twelve, undergrad, medical school. You come out of medical school. You are qualified to do nothing, absolutely nothing, because you can't find a residency slot. It. It. I mean. You, you can look at this through so many different lenses and, and just how unfair and restrictive the system is. It, it really, it, it's just so wrong. And I don't think they're even if you look at that from a student perspective, how unfair is that? So international physicians would allow, or the policy would allow international physicians to come in. Um, and then I think when people would say, well you know, do we really want international physicians? Well, a third of the physicians in the U.S. today are international medical school grads are ready. Full we'll stop. So, and their quality is is similar, if not, it, I would just say their quality is very similar to domestically trained physicians. So it's it's just removing those regulations and being thoughtful. I think the other pillar of Cicero would be around transparency. And there's there's been attempts to have more transparency in healthcare for some time. One, it's really difficult to do. I'm not saying this is just like health systems and insurance companies have been hiding this information. It it is difficult to put together. But at the same time, um the way the health system when I say health system, I mean the entire the health system economics is about market share. So the more market share you have, the more you can command from a payer because that payer, that insurance company needs you in the network in order for them to sell their insurance to an employer because the employer wants access to healthcare, And so that has unnaturally driven the cost up. But if you could put more power in the patient's hands, let me, let me take one step back. And there's been a lot of work that's been done to quantify the quality of care that exists. You know, like when is your fall visits? Are you getting your vaccinations? You know, managing your A1C for those who are diabetic. There are those quality programs. But at the end of the day, who is best to determine the quality of their health care? It's the patient. And and quality. There's a trade-off sometimes between quality and price. So if you can allow a patient to shop around for services, and if they find it cheaper than what the insurance company has it negotiated for, and that patient pays it, that qualifies towards their deductible. And any other discounts that that patient gets, they share with the insurance company. It's called patient's right to save. So. Now I, I think that is a is a great step towards putting more power in the patient's hands. Um, it certainly isn't going to drive the cost up. And I think health systems and payers will be more focused on the consumer instead of the the business to business transaction. It'll be more business to consumer. Because again, I mean, like I don't know if you're a Chevy or a Ford guy, but I'll just use that. I'm I'm neither. But a Chevy pickup and a Ford pickup are about the same price. There's very few people I know that go back and forth between Ford and Chevy. They've, they've clearly decided that one is higher quality than the other. The same should exist in healthcare because we do have a very good healthcare system that does have excellent quality. So let the patient decide. Toyota. Yeah,
1: just so you know, we're, we're Toyota people. Oh, okay. <laughs> and we have spent way too much money over the years on a bucket of bolts with four chunks of rubber on that <laughs> i don't know leave it at that
0: well let's ask this have you ever bought a honda
1: i have oh okay and i had a ford explorer once but you know of all the cars that we've owned and there's too many of them and they're just you're pissing money away when it comes to cars It's Designed to get you from point A to point B. Um, most of them have been Toyotas because we love them. We, we they have been very dependable. I'm not slamming another manufacturer. We've just had great success and we're comfortable with it. So,
0: and, so, and you get to decide.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, th- this this whole this conundrum you just explained. It, where does the Patients' Rights Act come into play with what you just described?
0: Well, I think the I am not a historian of healthcare regulations by any stretch, but I think the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act of 1997, there's a lot of things, and, and people typically know it as HIPAA. Um, that is where a lot of the privacy regulations came from. And so, with those privacy regulations, it created a lot of barriers for health systems and insurance that some may like or dislike by being able to let the patients <clears throat> make more choices. And, and ironically, um, I don't know if this is fact or fiction, but the lore is that Senator Ted Kennedy's family member had a pacemaker put in, and someone found out. Um, that individual's pacemaker's id because that that serial number was not patient protected and tried to do something to their pacemaker by going into it and so mm. then that hipaa bill just exploded and so it has created a ton of regulation that some of it is probably appropriate Actually, i know some of it's appropriate but it just got way too big because as soon as you have Lawmakers and state agencies and federal agencies thinking about these things, they're coming up with every possible scenario what they're trying to protect. Not thinking about, okay, but the more and more that you add, what are you taking away and how much cost are you adding to the system? And I think this whole concept of time having value just sometimes doesn't exist when laws are passed and rules are written, and it, it just significantly impacts what we ultimately want.
1: It, it, your role as the senior fellow and the vice president for healthcare policy. I, I'm assuming p- part of your day is spent in conversation with probably legislators, policymakers, and sh- demonstrating to them, based on your knowledge, here are some things that could ultimately make this a far better experience for the consumer. And and, and then that that same legislator is going to have somebody come from the insurance side. They're going to have somebody come from the healthcare provider side. So they're inundated with people that have a, I don't want to say a vested interest, but a particular set of people that they're most concerned with. How, How can they best flesh all that out? Um, keeping in mind, by the way, healthcare is critically important. Hard to have a quality of life if you don't have access to good healthcare and making good decisions, by the way. But ultimately, we don't give the patient, the customer, enough choice in all this. How, how did, what's the best way to go about that for legislators?
0: Well, that, I mean, that is a great question because, as I mentioned earlier, healthcare is complex and we've created just this monstrosity. And and the health system itself is a function of the policies and incentives that exist today. So there's no bad actors in this. They are running their business and doing their mission within the confines of what, frankly, the government has created for them to operate in. So there, there truly are no bad actors. But that being said, when you get so big, the legislators are, you know, not only looking at like, well, OK, everybody's getting health care. They keep telling me it's expensive. It keeps exploding our budget at the state level. <clears throat> but they're also our largest employers. They also do other work within our communities that is necessary. And, you know, as as one nun told me one time, you know, Chris, we love change. Just don't change us, you know. I mean that—that's—that's that's for everything. <clears throat> no one, <clears throat> no one likes to change. So, making these changes, whether major or minor, that health system or that insurance company or whomever is the the business side of healthcare is going to tell that legislator, "Well, we might lose jobs. We might have to close. We'll close a service line." you know and in some communities it's happening but it's not it's not because we're not giving patients choices a lot of times it's just because society has changed and the expectations are changing so you know again you you mentioned earlier that the healthcare is 20% of the gdp it was it was 20% i think in 2022 i think it's back down to about 18.5% i mean it's still growing but it went all the way to 20% during COVID, we took one and a half percent of the GDP, and if the GDP is twenty trillion, you, you just go back. I mean, we're talking about taking out hundreds of billions of dollars from the healthcare industry. Have Have you noticed massive closures? Or you know, you, you have it, and so that—that's what I mean by how do you reward behavior? Not only of patients, but the industry itself, you can start to tick that back down. You just can't do a lot. I mean, if, if we could reduce healthcare spending as a percentage GDP by 0.2% every year for the next 20 years, we're 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 in like Flynn, right? But you can't make these massive changes. So, but again, it's 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 like the NRA. You, you can't, we, we can't change anything. We, we can never go backwards and we just want to consume more because we don't have that fundamental economic principle of the best person to determine cost and value is the patient.
1: I'm going to go back to what my uncle thought, um, that it will, it will take care of itself. It will work, it, work it its way out. To some, to some degree, going back to your reference to telemedicine, which is a game changer, clearly, a, a, well, and the founder of your, your organization knows a lot about AI and technology. Um, is, is it possible that technology in the healthcare field, in terms of the services provided that the customer needs, majority of not like you're it's not like you're going to have brain surgery through telemedicine or you know cardiovascular surgery but in in that in that instance is it possible that the growth of telemedicine and the access to it no matter where you are no matter your means could that be part of the solution to um Some of your challenge, by the way, in terms of making sure that the customer has more say, more choice, and that it also brings the cost of it. I don't want to say to a more manageable place because costs are costs. I get it. But is telemedicine going to be, you know, if it's a three-legged stool, could that be one of the legs that could make a huge difference for the very people that you're representing?
0: um short answer is no um and again it's it's such a minor minor part and this is where government governments getting in the way um like but for instance you could talk to some insurance companies and they would say we want to restrict telemedicine because that's going to increase utilization well if it's medically necessary that they see a physician or see a therapist don't you want them to have it to prevent more cost down the road. It's 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 just a shift in mindset. But when when you brought up AI, and I hope as we're doing this, all of a sudden I don't lose internet access um, because what I'm going to say isn't going to make Microsoft, Google, or you know the, the big tech firms happy. But <clears throat> what the Biden administration put out relating to AI regulation is is only protecting the big tech companies. It's protecting the big EHR companies. And they are holding on to all this information that entrepreneurs could look at, to look at trends, to start to do all of this work that physicians and nurses, and frankly, I mean, right now, the back office, the administrative side, AI could do a lot of it. But we don't want to share that information because there the industry is so big and there's very few players in it. They don't want to open it up. So for instance, if you take Epic EHR, they are one of the largest EHR companies. They have a great product, but they are pretty much a closed system. And so they are working with ChatGPT and Microsoft. They have a complete control over all of that, and That that should scare people. And so by putting all of these additional regulations is only helping the large firms and not allowing innovation to occur. And that is something we are focused on as well. We're we're still trying to figure out a way to work with legislators on that because it's, it's just, well, it's so new and it's extremely complex. And I think the fear of it has gotten ahead of its value.
1: Chris, is your, your footprint in terms of uh, your role with Cicero Institute, is your footprint nationwide um, in terms right now, of your scope yeah, sets?
0: Yeah, we're, we're, um, we're unique in a couple ways. One, we aren't a traditional think tank. Um, there's a lot of you know, people who have just worked in policy in Cicero, um, but there's a number of us that have actually done the work as well. And so, we wanted to make ourselves different as a think tank that way. But then, also, there is a lobbying arm of Cicero as well. And that lobbying arm right now, um, I think last year was in 10 states, and now we're in 20 states. So, the the big states obviously have been Texas, but also Florida, Arizona, Nebraska, Kansas, Iowa, Missouri, Tennessee. Um, I'm forgetting some of them. But I mean, they're usually more. Uh, Republican states. Because again, anytime you take money out, it just doesn't usually go well in a blue state.
1: Hmm. Cicero Institute, C I C E R O Institute.org. I know we're going to run out of time here, so I'm going to ask you two questions. How can people help you if, if someone were to go to cicero how can people help you and your company with this incredibly important mission
0: well i think the first thing is to look at it with an open mind because again um no one likes to change and the things that you may depending on what industry you're in you may look at it and be like that is going to destroy the industry it's like well, no, these things are going to happen over time. Um, and, that's, and that's really what, what we want. Um, should it be difficult and transformational? Absolutely. But you can't destroy a, a, a system. Um, and I think for, for those that are interested, especially, you know, lawmakers or people in industry, more than happy to have them reach out to me. My contact information is on there. Um, we, we do a fair amount of um, public speaking engagements as well. Um, you know, we, we partner with the Cato Institute and um, a number of other think tanks and just trying to think about what are the best ways to do these things. And again, because it's become so big, there are so many parts and pieces to how healthcare is paid for. We just have to start unwinding them. And, and that's, that's that's just what I'd say. I think the other thing, if, if you go on there and would want to spend a little time talking about this or be happy to come on because I think this is becoming a bigger issue, is um, homelessness and behavioral health. Um, spending a lot of time on that. I've been um, pulled into a number of areas there. And, you know, the the solutions that are being proposed by others are not good. Um, there there seems to be this desire to go back to more institutionalization. That is, while when beds were closed in the 80s, there was not the necessary community supports that were invested in after closing them. That was horribly wrong. But I would ask when people are like, let's put them back in institutions. um, Think about... The individuals themselves that would go back into the, I mean, that would be my number one thing to have, have a little bit of empathy and then go back and look at what those institutions were like. And they didn't start that way, but states are not going to fund them. The federal government is not going to fund them out of sight, out of mind. Institutionalization should be for only unfortunately the sickest of the sick and those that have the greatest, greatest needs. And we have to be thinking about this so much differently as it relates to individuals with SMI, s- severe mental illness like schizophrenia and bipolar, um people with addiction. Um you know, I, I for people in North Dakota specifically, um, institutionalization was also a significant issue for our developmental disability community. There was a significant lawsuit. If you want to look at pictures and see how we treated humanity, that should tell you right there that the institutionalization of individuals is probably the most inhumane thing we can do. I think we're, so from a homelessness perspective, I mean, it is a multi-pronged approach, um, but we have to have humans in the center of it. And the dollars that are invested need to give us a return. I think there's, much more work that can be done with corrections and parole and probation. They're not staffed or funded for rehabilitation. They are staffed for consequences. and their culture is is set that way. I mean if you look at corrections, it has one of the lowest um, generally speaking, I'm not speaking about North Dakota, this is on a national basis, Some of the lowest employee engagement. And, and if you're trapped in a cell, do you really want people who really are unhappy at their job and not treating you with respect and want to see you be successful when you leave? No. And, and that's a waste of our money. Yeah. So it's, it, they're, they're those type of things. But, but how we frame it, how we tell the story, I mean, all about it is how do we continue to improve? And that's the goal. Um, that's the goal.
1: Yeah, one of the reasons that I've always loved you, Chris, is um, you've had this. You you have. First of all, you're very intelligent, and very experienced. You have this great heart, um, and this compassion for the the entire continuum of healthcare, from you know early childhood development to senior care. And there's this whole continuum of care that needs to be accessible. It has to be affordable, and we have to be caring enough to make certain that we're doing the best that we can for the people that we're serving with the resources that we have. And sometimes we have a tendency to take an and we take an easier path out, uh, which isn't is not the best way to serve the people that we're trying mm-hmm. to serve. Chris, I know you're up against a clock here. I would love to have you back and talk I'd about love to be back. homelessness. And, and, and if you want to bring your colleagues on and use uh, the podcast as a tool to help you accomplish what you need to accomplish, because that helps all of us, Chris. You know, thank you. Thank you for the years of service to the state of North Dakota, the incredible things that you did and the incredible work you're doing right now. Healthcare is a juggernaut when it comes to managing the delivery systems and a good outcome for all. And I can't think of a better person I know to lead part of that charge, and I'm glad they found you, and I'm glad you're doing it. Well, thank you. I I appreciate the kind words. We'll we'll do it again, and at the end of the day, if it's nice enough, go out for a nice long bike ride.
0: Well yes. I'm riding bike more again.
1: It's good. Good for you. Chris, thanks so much for joining me. I appreciate you and what you're doing at CiceroInstitute.org. Chris Jones, thank you so much. Thank you.